Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I'm your host, Nick Agar Johnson. Today we are finishing out the second half of our awards podcast, so I'm back once again with Jordan Christmas and JC Fisher. This part, as well as the MVP and Defensive Player of the Year award discussion, which we did in part one, was recorded on Sunday afternoon, so before Russell Westbrook broke Oscar Robertson's triple-double record and scored 50 points and the game-winning 30-foot three-pointer. I don't think my MVP decision has changed after that, despite how incredible his performance has been all year long and that one capstone moment, but I think that definitely made the race a lot closer, which is very interesting and unfortunately something we didn't get to discuss. But let's jump right back in to the awards. Let's move on to the All-NBA teams. So. Jordan, I want you to start us off with your first team, and then we'll sort of go from there down the list. I have a pretty strong feeling that the first four spots on all of our first teams is pretty set in. It's the four MVP candidates. I have Harden, Westbrook, Leonard, LeBron. I know a lot of people wanted to put Anthony Davis as the center, and I can see that, but I mean, I gotta put Rudy Gobert there just because he has been a terror like we discussed in the defensive player of the year segment he has been a terror on that end and he's also a really efficient scorer also he doesn't really need the ball in his hands but I just think I guess it's more of a traditionalist pick for me and I guess that usually doesn't happen with me but I guess I'd I'd put Rudy Gobert there ahead of Anthony Davis also partly because the Jazz have won 49 games and they're going to make it to the playoffs and Rudy Gobert is a big reason why and it's the defense has been their identity and Rudy Gobert has been the engine that makes that defense work so I put Rudy Gobert there ahead of Anthony Davis and you could say Boogie or even not Carl Anthony Towns on the first team but I know people wanted to put Anthony Davis in there for the statistical season he's having but I just also factored in success insane elite defense and Rudy Gobert took the center spot for me I have the same five for the same reasons I think that there was an argument maybe at midseason to put Davis in as the starting center but especially since the Cousins trade he just hasn't spent enough time there for me to put him above Gobert I think that Gobert absolutely deserves to be on the first team this year. He's made a huge leap on the offensive end, although all we've talked about is his defense so far, and has really helped the Jazz through a number of injury issues that are surprising given how well they've done and the thought that they would need all of their guys. And I think a big part of the reason they've been okay is the leap that Gobert's taken, and this is a great way to recognize that ability. So I'm going to push back on you guys just a little bit in terms of the Anthony Davis argument. So I did have Anthony Davis as my first team center, and this was really the only decision that I had to make on the first team, just because I think we can all agree that the guards and forwards on the first team are pretty much locked in. But Davis will end the season having played more than 64% of his minutes this season as a center per basketball references numbers. So I don't think it's unfair to say that he really has been a center this season, even with the DeMarcus Cousins trade. His defensive RPM is 3.65. That's one of the best numbers in the league. He's putting up 28 points a game and 12 rebounds a game on really efficient shooting in addition to his defensive impact. And For more selfish reasons, I really wanted to put Davis in as a center just because the guys that are going to get left off the list in terms of forwards 
are a lot better than the guys that are going to get left off the list in terms of centers. So I think that minute split of his justifies putting him in at center, and I also just wanted to put him in at center anyway, so I could recognize some of the really fantastic forwards we've had this season. So let's move on to the second team. So I think I'm going to get some disagreements with you guys in terms of my second team candidates. So I had Chris Paul and Steph Curry as the guards. I had Kevin Durant and Draymond Green as the forwards, and then Rudy Gobert at center because I didn't put him on my first team. In terms of Chris Paul, he leads all point guards in defensive RBM by a pretty solid margin. The Clippers are 41 and 18 with Paul, and they're 8 and 13 without him. He's going to end up playing more than 60 games, which I think is a good baseline in terms of qualifying for the All NBA teams. He's also near the top in terms of offensive RPM. He's shooting a career best true shooting percentage. It's around 61. And he's still Chris Paul on both ends of the floor. And He's been so much better on defense than both of the guys that I have on my third team that I think I can justify putting him there, even though he's only played 60 games. My second guard, Steph Curry, my arguments for him are the same as they were when I argued for him as fifth place in MVP. Kevin Durant, he will also end up playing more than 60 games, which, again, is sort of my incredibly arbitrary cutoff. He's been almost impossibly efficient. He's got nearly a 65% true shooting percentage. He's still putting up a ton of points. He's been better on defense this year than at any other time in his career other than the first five games of the Thunder Warriors series last playoffs. And he is just, I mean, he's still Kevin Durant. He's still either the second or third best player in the league, in my opinion, and he deserves to be on that second team. I have Draymond Green as the second team forward. His offense has dipped a little bit. He's shooting only 31% on three-pointers, and they're all just wide, wide open, because you can't really guard the Warriors without leaving at least someone a little bit open. But he's still an absurdly talented defensive player, and his passing really helps this team go. So I felt justified in putting him on the second team with two of his teammates. I mean, I have no problem with the Chris Paul pick. I love Chris Paul. The stats show that he's arguably probably the greatest point guard ever, but because of playoff success, obviously that he will be looked at differently. But I actually have Steph Curry for the reasons we explained earlier as why we have him as fifth in our MVP balloting. But I have John Wall in my second in my second guard spot, and I'm also factoring in the fact that the Wizards could win 50 games for the first time in almost 40 years. But I think John Wall has been incredible. That team has really clicked, especially since their two and eight start. And one of those losses was a loss to the 76ers with Jaleel Okafor as the starting center. That was like one of the more terrible losses that I've seen from a team with all that talent. But anyway, um, he's he's averaged 23, four rebounds and 10 assists a game. His defensive RPM, it's not that great. And the Wizards aren't really a great defensive team. But I think Wall and Bradley Beal, of course, but he's a to me, he's taken the leap in his game where he used to be really fast and out of control earlier in this career. He's also been relatively more healthy this year, but he's learned how to control his speeds, shifting between third and fourth gear, so to speak. He's a pass-first point guard, has incredible vision, and I just think he's been spectacular this year. And I'm also factoring in team success just for the fact that I did not expect the Wizards to be bordering 50 wins this year, and I think John Wall is the main reason why. And then I have Draymond Green and Kevin Durant as my forwards, and then 
then I have Anthony Davis as my second team center. And I know Anthony Davis doesn't have the roster that Gobert does, but I I still just wanted to factor in team success. But I have Anthony Davis on my second team center. So I've got to disagree really, really heavily with putting Davis as a second team center. I could see him as a forward or I could see him as the first team center. Because if you think he fits at center, you know, I'm a huge Gobert fan. I love what he's done. I am as my first team center. But Davis has clearly had a better season. And it's all about whether or not you think he deserves to be a center to me. I think if you're going to put Davis at center, you have to put him first team. He's clearly had a better season than Gobert. And if you think that he fits at center, he should be above Gobert. If you think that he's got to be a forward, I understand not having him on the first team, which you'll see I've got him down below. But beyond that, I agree with you on John Wall. I love the reasoning. I think he's been excellent for the Wizards who have had team success that they haven't seen in a very long time. So I've got my second team guards as Wall and Curry. I've also got Durant at the forward spot. But where I disagree with you guys then is center, where I've got Nikola Jokic, who has been a revelation for a Denver Nuggets team that nearly made the playoffs and is just incredibly fun to watch. He makes everyone around him better. He's got a top PER in the league. He makes amazing passes. He protects the rim fairly well, especially for someone with his slow feet, and generally has become the engine for everything that Denver does on the offensive end of the court. And then I rounded out with Giannis Antetokounmpo as my last second team forward spot. All the Bucks recently tweeted about this, but Giannis has clinched first place in all five major statistical categories for the Bucks and is only the fifth player in NBA history to do that for a team. He truly does represent everything the Bucks do on each end of the court, as they are going to make the playoffs without Middleton for the first half of the season, without Parker for the second half of the season. He has driven them on offense and on defense. He handles the ball. He does everything for them. And I think that he is a future MVP candidate, and this is just the beginning for the player affectionately known as the Greek Freak. So that said, I think we can probably move on to the third team. Like you mentioned, Nick, I've got Chris Paul on an all-NBA team, just one behind you. His backcourt mate here is Isaiah Thomas, coming out of the Celtics, who's had an excellent season and might even be a most improved player candidate. This is where I slotted in Draymond Green and Anthony Davis, as well as my forwards. Like I said, I just... I know Davis spent some time at center and a lot of those small ball lineups for the Pelicans, but he just, he plays like a forward and I think he wants to play forward. Finally, I'm rounding it off then with Mark Gasol at center. He's been a little under the radar since the midseason point, but he's scoring and assisting more than he ever has in his career. He's fouling less than he ever has in his career. His defense hasn't really dropped off. He's a key part of the Grizzlies offense with Mike Conley, and that team somehow continues to stay in the playoffs year after year when they face injuries, when they face a lack of supporting cast. And I think a huge reason for that is Gasol and his excellence from wire to wire. So I heavily considered Gasol for my third team center, but I didn't end up picking him, which I'll get to in a second. But my third team was Isaiah Thomas and John Wall. Isaiah Thomas does not impact the team in any way that isn't negative on the defensive end. He has the worst defensive RPM among all point guards. But his offensive RPM is fourth best in the league, which actually makes his overall RPM positive, which is honestly remarkable. He is scoring incredibly efficiently in addition to just the sheer numbers that he's putting up. And I've loved Isaiah Thomas for a long time. I've loved him since he was a king. And... 
even though I couldn't put him on the second team, he, I think, has clearly earned a spot on an All-NBA team. I had John Wall as my other guard. I put him below Chris Paul just because his defense has not been anywhere near as good this season as it has been in the past, and Paul continues to be probably the best defensive point guard in basketball. I had Jimmy Butler as my third team forward alongside Giannis. Butler might somehow lead this Bulls team into the playoffs, which honestly is a remarkable achievement. He's their best defensive player. He's their best offensive player. He's averaging 24 points, 6.2 rebounds, and 5.5 assists per game. And the fact that anyone can average more than one assist per game with Rajon Rondo on your team is an achievement in and of itself. But for someone like Butler to get up to five and a half, I think is really impressive. And the center, which... Again, circling back to my earlier point, I had DeAndre Jordan over Marc Gasol, and there are a couple of reasons for that. The first one is, while defensive RPM does underrate how effective Marc Gasol is on the defensive end, he's still 45th among 70 qualified centers, and DeAndre Jordan is fifth, and of the three guys between DeAndre and Rudy Gobert at the top of the list, none of them average more than 20 minutes a game. So really, DeAndre is, by a lot of measures, the second best defensive center in basketball. He's also going to end the season shooting better than 70% from the floor, which has been done four times in NBA history. And by the way, of those four times, DeAndre Jordan will represent three of them. I think DeAndre tends to get massively underrated just because people focus on, oh, he can't make his free throws. Why can't he make his free throws? And also, you know, the argument of, well, he wouldn't be doing anywhere near as well without Chris Paul. But Chris Paul had Tyson Chandler for a while, and Tyson Chandler was still nowhere near as efficient as DeAndre Jordan has been. So his free throw percentage has also dipped below 50% again, but it was above 50% for a lot of the season. He's also averaging almost 14 rebounds per game, which is remarkable. And the fact that the Clippers did not lose every single game that both Chris Paul and Blake Griffin missed really does speak to how useful DeAndre Jordan can be, even when he doesn't have star players around him. Okay, so I guess I'll start with the guards. I had Chris Paul and then Isaiah Thomas, the king of the fourth, and I had Greek Freak as the forward, and then I had Jimmy Butler just, like you said, leading this mess of a Chicago Bulls team to the playoffs. And I have DeAndre Jordan in there just because the team success Clippers are in the playoffs. And actually, I think he's become underrated now. And it's not only because people focus on the free throws and, you know, the whole Chris Paul factor. Would he be a lesser player if Chris Paul wasn't on the court? And, oh, all he only does is dunk. That's why he has a high field goal percentage. Yeah, dunking's awesome. <laughs> I still have dunking on my bucket list. <laughs> like, I wish I could dunk. I mean, you put the ball in the basket. I mean, I'm sorry. Like, DeAndre Jordan, I I have him as my third team center. But I have to say, I really so desperately, badly wanted to put Carl Anthony Towns as my third team all NBA center and I just couldn't bring myself to it because the Wolves haven't lived up to any expectations I mean they obviously played better at the turn of the new year but man they started off really badly but here are some stats for Carl Anthony Towns and I'm kind of doing like the Paul Millsap thing where I just have to give Carl Anthony Towns a shout out but since February 1st to now Carl Anthony Towns has averaged 28 points a game 12 rebounds a game, 
on 58% shooting, 40% from three, and 86% from the foul line. That is absolutely, positively absurd for a 21-year-old to be putting up those type of numbers and to average 25 and 12 in your sophomore season. I really wanted to put Carl Anthony Towns third. I had him on this list about an hour before we recorded this podcast, but I was just like, I can't, I just can't. The, the team success matters. And hey, winning in the NBA is hard, especially if you're a team with a bunch of 21, 22, 23-year-olds. It's just hard, but I just couldn't. I couldn't bring myself to it, but I just have to give Carl Anthony Towns a shout out. That dude is going to be special, or he is special already. But man, he has been absurd since the turn of February. The big knock against Carl Anthony Towns is that he just hasn't figured out how to defend yet. Yeah, that's true too. He has the worst defensive RPM among all qualified centers. And while I heavily considered Carl Anthony Towns as well, I just can't put someone in at center where defense is really the primary responsibility if their defense is just that bad. There's a difference between bad on defense and worst in the league. Okay, so moving on to rookie of the year, and I so desperately wanted to go first on this because I actually have a few rants about rookie of the year. But first, I guess I should give my top five, actually. Number five, I have Karis LeVert in my number five spot. I have I have Jalen Brown. And then Malcolm Brogdon, Dario Saric, and number one is Joel Hansenbeed. And there has been this whole debate about, oh, Joel Embiid has only played 786 minutes. Uh, he's only played 31 games. First of all, and as I wrote out in my hashtag basketball article, you should go check that out. It's not rookie who played the most minutes or rookie who played the most games. The literal definition of the award is who is the best rookie. And to me, there's a few factors. One, in 31 games, Joel Embiid's peers were not only this really underwhelming rookie class, but his peers were all-star players. On top of the fact, and the Ringers' Kevin O'Connor wrote this out in a great article, this 2016 draft class has had the lowest amount of average win shares of the draft classes in the last 30 years. And it's amazing, like, Malcolm Brogdon, who was drafted in the second round, has been the best 2016 draft pick out of this entire class. And first of all, when did we start setting arbitrary cutoffs for games? I mean, the, the most people who say that Embiid shouldn't win Rookie of the Year, they always preface their reasoning with, let me just say, by far, he, he, he is by far the most talented rookie. Well, stop right there, because there is clearly a number of games that satisfied you enough to say, this dude is by far the most talented and best rookie out of all the rookie eligible players. Now, we can debate whether someone from a 2014 draft clash should win Rookie of the Year. That's a different debate. We are talking about the rules as they are set now. And Joel Embiid, from December 8th to late January, Joel Embiid made the Sixers, I repeat, the Sixers, a top five defensive team in defensive rating. In the 31 games he played, his opponent defensive field goal percentage around the rim is 43.8%. That is 4% lower than Rudy Gobert. And I still haven't seen a rookie who had that two-way impact in the 82 games that any rookie has played this year. If Embiid had this same carbon copy season and place it last year, if he played last year with that incredible draft class, then fine, I can get the games argument, but I am just not okay with 
oh, he didn't play enough games, even though there was clearly a large enough sample size where Embiid proved that he was by far the best rookie. He just is. I mean, the game's argument and how weak this 2016 draft class is, just that's not a viable argument to me. He has been the best player. I know he's only played 31 games, and I'm scared for his health, even as a big of an Embiid fan as I am. But he's been the best player. I mean, who averages 27, two and a half blocks a game, two assists on a 25-minute limit restriction? I mean, who does that? (laughs) To me, it's not a debate. And I know Bucks fans, I love Malcolm Brogdon, but I'm sorry, don't cite advanced stats to me when Malcolm Brogdon plays with arguably a top 15 player in the world in Giannis, Jabari Parker for up until he blew out his knee, and then Chris Middleton shot 5,000% from three in March. Uh, Malcolm Brogdon is an important piece. He is a great complement to the more talented players he has around him, but to me, Saric has been the better player. He has more upside, and I guess my argument is put Brogdon on the Sixers and put Saric on the Bucks, and I know they play different positions, but give Brogdon the responsibilities that Saric has had since uh, February 8th, where Saric has averaged 18-9 and is shooting 52% within the three-point line. But give Brogdon that, and I'm not so sure he had puts up the same amount of stats as Dario, because I know there's the volume argument with Dario, but Dario has been uber important to the Sixers, and I think Dario's been the better player also. But all in all, it doesn't matter. Joel Embiid should be Rookie of the Year. And that is my three-minute rant. I suppose I'll follow that up with Rookie of the Year Malcolm Brogdon, because (laughs) this can't possibly be a guy who played 31 games. It's not just the best rookie. The Rookie of the Year is the rookie who had the best year. It's the Rookie of the Year. It's not the rookie of November and December. It's the Rookie of the Year, and that includes all 82 games. And when you look at what Brogdon has done for a playoff team as a key contributor and someone that when he's off the court, the Bucks simply don't do as well, I don't understand how you can't reward the guy who has had the best overall year. He's contributed the most to the team that has had the most success of all the rookies. I just can't get there. I can't put Brogdon above Saric. I mean, there's still noise in those numbers to me because he plays with Greek Freak and Jabari. And let me just say, I love Brogdon's game. He reminds me of a bigger Andre Miller who can shoot threes and is a better defender, obviously. But I think with the volume argument, if you put Brogdon on the Sixers, I do not think Brogdon would do as well. I think if you put Saric on the Bucks, I think they would actually make the Bucks better, in my opinion. I, I just can't get over the fact Embiid still leads all rookies with 14 20-point games, still leads them in blocks. I mean, Brogdon at the beginning of March was 100 p- total points behind Embiid and just passed him up. The rookies, to me, haven't matched the immense production that Embiid put up in a short amount of time. And with this underwhelming rookie class, I just can't see it i can't i can't give the award to an under one of the underwhelming candidates when i just saw an all-star level play from a rookie that's certainly a prerogative and i think nick might agree with you nick who do you have up there at rookie of the year i do have joel indeed as rookie of the year and the reason that i have joel indeed as rookie of the year is for a pretty similar set of reasons to what jordan articulated although i felt it necessary to have a cutoff of around 60 or so games for the All-NBA teams. I think the definition of Rookie of the Year is a little bit murkier than those, and it also doesn't carry the same kind of weight just in terms of how important it is, both legacy-wise and in terms of contracts. I really feel uncomfortable picking a Rookie of the Year who only played 31 games. 
But Joel Embiid has just been so many orders of magnitude better than every single other rookie in this class that I just can't bring myself to pick someone like Malcolm Brogdon, who I had in second, when Joel Embiid has just been so, so much better than every other rookie in this class. I mean, he had the best defensive field goal percentage near the rim of any player in the NBA, period. Better than Rudy Gobert, better than Draymond Green, better than anybody. And he was a ridiculously effective offensive player as well. And just his impact on both ends of the floor in those 31 games, I genuinely believe that Joel Embiid, if you're talking about pure wins, I think Joel Embiid contributed more wins to this year's Philadelphia 76ers team than any of the other guys on this list contributed to their respective teams. And for me, that overrides the fact that he missed a significant chunk of the season. So luckily for us, the all-rookie teams operate on a positionless basis. So the top five for Rookie of the Year is, in essence, the all-rookie first team. So I had Embiid, I had Malcolm Brogdon, I had Dario Saric, And then my last two, you guys might think that these are Homer picks, seeing as, you know, they play for two of the teams that I write for, but Buddy Heald and Karis LeVert round out my all-rookie first team. Buddy Heald, since he's gotten to Sacramento, has actually been a really effective offensive player. He's got a 61.4% true shooting. He's averaging 14.5 points per game. He's actually been really good this whole season. But his numbers are dragged down by the fact that he had just an awful month of November. And if you sort of take his stats aside from that really tough first month of the season, he's been a lot better. He's still a really poor defender. He still does not have the kind of handle that you need to be a lead guard in the NBA. And maybe even not a good enough handle to be a consistent starting second guard. But I've been really impressed with him since he came to Sacramento. And I was just expecting to hate him because he wasn't going to be DeMarcus Cousins. But I've actually been really impressed with him so far. And my fifth spot went to Karis LeVert over Jalen Brown. It was a really tough decision for me between the two of those. But as I wrote on my most recent article for Hashtag Basketball, because after all, if Jordan gets to plug something, I get to plug something too. (laughs) Karis LeVert has been incredible since the All-Star break. He's averaging close to 10 points, four rebounds, and two assists, but he's doing it on 60% true shooting, which is a massive improvement from where he was earlier in the season. He's also been good for a rookie on the defensive end, especially once he's sort of shifted to small forward rather than spending a lot of minutes at guard. And even though it was tough to pick against Jalen Brown, who's been playing for a much better team and has shot almost 40% from three-point range since the All-Star break, Karis LeVert has just been so much fun to watch, and I couldn't forgive myself for not at least putting him on the first team. Yeah, to follow that, I was a big Karis LeVert fan at Michigan. The only problems were health, and I'm just really glad that he's playing well. And I'd also like to make an audible. I want to <laughs> remove Jalen Brown from fourth and Rookie of the Year and put Buddy Heald there because you're absolutely right. Yeah, I mean, aside from the turnovers and the defense, which, you know, rookies always have a tough learning curve with that, um, Buddy Heald has been what we really kind of expected coming out of Oklahoma, a knockdown shooter can shoot off the dribble and he's really played well in Sacramento and being a Northern California guy I see a lot of Kings games so it's nice to see Buddy Heal do well although 
as a Sixer fan, the draft picks that are owed to us, the value keeps getting lower and lower when I see those players improve. <laughs> but um, I like, but I have Joel Embiid, I have Sarich, Malcolm Brogdon, then I'll put Heald. I took out Brown and put Heald, and then Karis LeVert. And yeah, that, that I just wanted to make a quick audible there, but that would be my rookie first team also. So that gives you guys roughly the same list. I have Brogdon, again, as my top guy. Dario Saric coming in next. Buddy Heald, my fellow Oklahoma alum. You know, Nick, you mentioned he doesn't have the greatest handle, but he's starting to show flashes here and there and more consistently with a nasty in and out when he drives the lane, with a great spin move when he needs it in the open court. And he's starting to get his feet under him a little bit with the NBA pick and roll system. So I wouldn't say that Jerry's quite out on him yet. The place that I differ most from you guys is that I have Marquise Chris making my team. He's near the top of the leaderboards in defensive win shares for rookies, according to basketball reference. He is an athletic freak. He goes up for oops from half court. He plays very well off of Devin Booker, and he looks like a future potential Sean Marion-like stud to me. And then I did decide that because of Joe Embiid's impact, he deserved a spot on the first team, in spite of the fact that he only played 31 games, and these are year-long awards. So that rounds out my list. I mean, it's incredible that players like Scalabissier, Georges Papianis, not to, you know, plug Kings players for Nick here, but Karis LeVert, some of these late round, second round guys, mid lottery picks, they have looked more polished than a lot of the top lottery picks. I know Ben Simmons was out with an injury, but Brandon Egram has played better since shooting an Ofer, a goose egg against the Celtics a couple weeks back. Marquise Chris, like you said, he has he has had an incredible month of March, but it really is incredible just how, I guess, underwhelming this rookie class has been. I still like this rookie class. Please, fans, if you're listening, do not give up on this rookie class. It's way too early, obviously, but... It really is incredible how some of the late rounders and mid rounders and second rounders have looked more polished than some of the lottery guys. Let's move on to sixth man of the year. I think this is a pretty well decided race at this point. I think there's a very clear top two and I think one of them has been far more effective than the other guys on the list. So I have Eric Gordon as the winner. I have Lou Williams in second place and I have Ennis Cantor in third place. So I put Gordon over Lou Williams for one very simple reason, which is since Lou Williams has come to Houston, Eric Gordon has just outplayed him. And even though Lou Williams is going to end up with better stats on the season, because he had a lot of the season to put up numbers on a Lakers team that was very actively trying to not win, Gordon has been better since Lou Will got traded to the Rockets. He's put up 241 threes, which is just incredible. And he has really had a bounce back year and has just been the perfect fit in this D'Antoni system. And quick reference back to the MVP stuff, I think part of the reason that James Harden's on-off numbers look like they do is because he's backed up by the two leading candidates in this race. But anyway, what are you guys' thoughts on Six Man? I have Gordon and then Lou Williams. And actually, I have third, Andre Iguodala. And honestly, I might have put him one. Like, I was seriously considering it. I know that 
he didn't play necessarily well to start off the season, but I've watched Andre for a long time, and he, at this point in his career, he's gearing up for the playoffs, but in this 11-game winning streak, he has shot 60% from the floor, has averaged four rebounds, four assists, has become a secondary playmaker, and is back to being more spry and springy and switchy and locking down on defense. I think on I think sometimes six man is just who scores the most off the bench, but Eric Gordon and Lou Williams have contributed immensely to the Rockets and Lou Williams on the Lakers too, but Eric Gordon has been the six man of the year. But shout out to Andre though. Yeah, you guys get no disagreement from me here. I think six man is kind of a an interesting award and one that maybe is intended to glorify coming off the bench a little bit. Same top two. I think Canner and Iguodala are both fine picks. I want to throw Zach Randolph's name out there just to kind of make sure he gets a shout out. He's done a great job coming off the bench. Part of the Grizzlies playoff run for yet another year. But beyond that, not much to add for me. All right. Well, if that's the case, then let's move on to most improved player. And this race for a lot of the season wasn't really close, in my opinion. But I think a couple of people have made runs at this since the All-Star break. That being said, I'm going with the same number one that I've had since, like, 10 games into the season, Giannis Antetokounmpo. I think everybody expected him to be better this year than he was last year. I don't think anyone expected him to make this massive of a leap from solid future prospect to making all three of our All-NBA teams and making it as high as second for one of us. So then, number two, I have Rudy Gobert. He's just as incredible of a defensive player as he was last year, but he's made huge strides on the offensive end. He's second in the league in field goal percentage behind DeAndre Jordan, and his free throw shooting has improved massively to the point where he's not someone that teams are going to consider fouling down the stretches of close games if he gets a rebound, which is important because he gets a lot of rebounds. And then in third place, I had a tough time not picking Isaiah Thomas, but I ended up going with James Johnson because I think James Johnson really typifies what this award should be. And granted, this is completely hypocritical given that I'm putting Giannis Antetokounmpo as the winner, but I think this award should really go to someone who has genuinely improved their game from one season to the next without it sort of being the natural progression of young player gets better. And James Johnson was nearly out of the league at the end of last year and putting up career highs pretty much across the board for a Miami team that's been one of the best stories of the season. He's become a point forward, which is something I don't think anyone really expected. And yeah, I think he, as a guy who's in his 30s and this is his first real opportunity at major minutes, he's made more of an impression on me than pretty much anyone else. He's averaging... 13 points, 5 rebounds, 3.5 assists per game, but his assists have been much better since January, where he started getting major minutes in that sort of backup point forward role. I think he represents what I would want the award winner to look like. It's just that Giannis has had such a great season that I can't justify not having him win the thing. Yeah, I also have Giannis as my victor. I agree that I don't like it to be the natural progression candidate, but I don't think Giannis is that guy when I think about what I mean when I say the natural progression guy. I tend to try and avoid the CJ McCollum pick from a couple years ago where a guy doesn't really get better, he just plays more. Whereas Giannis, I think, was already playing a ton. He, this season, has jumped from a good player with potential to a top 15 player in the world, and he led the Bucks and will lead the Bucks in points, assists, rebounds, blocks, 
steals. Every major statistical category we think about, he's at the top of his team. Whereas before, he was just a guy without a jump shot, with a lot of potential, with some freakish Euro steps, and he's really turned that into a lot of production. Second on my list is Isaiah Thomas. I think he's jumped from a great scoring guard to a great point guard, which I think is a key difference and one of the reasons that this Boston team is over 50 wins and contending for the top seed in the East this year. But in third, I want to make sure we talk about Harrison Barnes, who needs a little love here. This season, coming out of Golden State and moving to Dallas, he's nearly doubled his scoring output. He's defended at both the three and the four for much of the season. He's improved as a ball handler. He's shouldered an isolation scoring load that he hasn't had since perhaps college, maybe even his high school days. And he's improved dramatically at the free throw line, increasing by a magnitude of 10% from the 70s up into the 80s at a career high, and has just done everything better. He's dealt with issues in his legs from being tired, defending big guys all the time, and it's affected his three-point shot, but he still managed to be a go-to guy down the stretch of a number of games for a Dallas team that suffered a ton of injuries and really needed him to shoulder a huge burden, both scoring, defensively, and from a minutes perspective. So Harrison Barnes rounds out my top three for most improved. I too have Giannis, and then that award was pretty handily won, and I have Isaiah Thomas at number two. And with all due respect to James Johnson, who lost a ton of weight and is also a black belt, so I don't want him to get mad that I left him off the third place. But Nikola Jokic has been one of my favorite players to watch this year. And I know he started 55 games last year, and you saw flashes of his passing, but this dude has been, and I don't think it's hyperbole to say because I went down a two-hour YouTube rabbit hole comparing these players, but he really is like Arvita Sabonis or Bill Walton in terms of passing. They make the same passes out of the post where they throw the pass ahead to where the cutter is supposed to be. He anticipates where the cutter is going to be. He's a point center. He's bringing the ball up the court and making passes that point guards can't even make. Since Mike Malone started him December 15th, when he finally realized that Jokic was his best player, he's been averaging 19 points, 11 rebounds, almost 6 assists, 5.8 assists, on 58% from the field and 35% from 3, which is league average. And I know Denver doesn't play a lick of defense, but... The Nuggets have been one of the best offensive teams since Mike Malone started Jokic, and I just love everything about Jokic. Cutters cut harder to the basket because they know they're getting the ball. His passing is now having that intangible stats can't be, you can't quantify this type of thing where everybody around him is just better. They cut harder. They make extra passes that other players normally wouldn't make just because Nikola Jokic's play is just so infectious. And he's just really improved this year. And I, th he's not just a passer. He's can score in the post. He could score in the mid range and he's a league average three point shooter. I am very high on Nikola Jokic. He is special, but he's third, but Giannis wins. But I just wanted to give a shout out to Nikola because he's been one of my favorite players to watch this year. With respect to leaving James Johnson off the list, coach of the year, I guess I'll start from three to one, but three, I had Eric Spolstra, and I honestly wanted to put him at two. I mean, the team started 11 and 30, and they have a rough schedule right now. They play the Cavs and the Wizards uh, these next two games, but they won last night. And so if they make the playoffs, it just makes his coach of the year candidacy even more quantifiable in my opinion but I had a really tough time with one and two switching back and forth between D'Antoni and Popovich and I had D'Antoni about 
a day before yesterday going into this. But I mean, I have to go with Popovich and not D'Antoni. And basically because, like we were talking about earlier, all the old players that the Spurs have, Tony Parker is nowhere near the same as he's been. They still have the best defense. They have seven new players. Tim Duncan retired. The best player in franchise history retired. And Popovich has still got this well-oiled machine still going. Now, Mike D'Antoni has a great case, too. I mean, even though it's a simple decision, sometimes simple is the best. And the simple decision was put the ball in James Harden's hands and let him be the point guard and surround him with shooters. But I just got to give it to Popovich with seven new guys on the roster. I mean, Bertens has been playing great. Dwayne Dedman. Well, now he's starting. Pau Gasol's been coming off the bench. But Jonathan Simmons, I mean, Patty Mills, they, he's still getting production out of this team. And Popovich, to me, is the coach of the year. I made an audible before the show, but I'm feeling pretty good about it. I suppose I'll follow your act going three to one also. Here's my thing with Spolstra. He started the year 11 and 30, and the first half of the season is still part of the season. So yeah, he is the coach of the second half of the year, but it's a year-long award. So at three, I've actually got Ty Lu coaching LeBron can't be easy. It's just, it's not. You've seen other guys struggle with it. You saw Tyloo come in last year and you saw him do an excellent job this year, mixing in Kevin Love and Kyrie and motivating a team to stay at the top of the Eastern Conference after perhaps the greatest NBA comeback of all time in last year's finals cannot possibly have been easy. And they've had their ups and downs, but here we are at the end of the year and they're sitting in first place with the tiebreaker over Boston. So we'll see what happens and if they make it back, but Tyloo is my third guy. Second, I've got Popovich. I had the same list written out as you, Jordan, about all the Spurs changes, so I won't repeat it here, but he's one of the best coaches. They're one of the best teams. Popovich is doing an excellent job yet again, as if time doesn't move on for a guy who consistently ends up at the top of this list every year, and it just seems like an afterthought to a lot of people, but he does an excellent job. It's undoubtable. Uh, In first, though, I've got Steve Kerr. The Warriors have the best record in the league. They've got another huge high 60s win season. He had to integrate Kevin Durant and then switch back to playing without Kevin Durant once they got comfortable and almost haven't missed a beat aside from that very first game of the season. So big shout out to Kerr, the system he runs, the way he manages his players and the way they all fit together. I think that's a huge accomplishment and he tops my list for that reason. So I did have Eric Spolstra in third and the reason I had Eric Spolstra in third is... While that 11 and 30 stretch did really knock him down in my book, and I had Brad Stevens ahead of him for basically most of the season up until about a couple of days before the podcast, then I looked into the Heat roster and just what Eric Spolstra's had to deal with. Dion Waiters has played 46 games. Josh Richardson has played 51 games. Josh McRoberts has played 22 games. Justice Winslow played 18 games. They lost so much of their team to injury for so much of the season. And I think that was a far bigger motivator for their really bad start to the year than anything that Spolster might have messed up on the coaching end. In second place, I had Mike D'Antoni. He's completely revolutionized this Houston offense, and he's taken a team that was just so painful to watch last season and made them one of the most fun teams in the league, in addition to boosting their record significantly. And I had D'Antoni at number one up until about last week when I took another look and realized Greg Popovich is leading this Spurs team with 
one All-Star in Kawhi Leonard to currently 61 wins and second-best record in the league after losing Tim Duncan, who, by the way, even as recently as last year, was second in the league in defensive RPM. And it would take a lot to convince me that the guy who has, for the most part, led this Spurs team over the last 20 years to this incredible run of success, you have to look at that and just marvel at the job that Greg Popovich continues to do year after year after year. I like the Steve Kerr pick. It's it, it was an interesting one. I never considered him a candidate, but I don't have an issue with it. I do think it's worth giving an honorable mention to Scotty Brooks out in Washington. Agreed. He's led a team that has struggled to get to the 50 win mark. They look like they should be set to make it this year. They're going to take home a division title. He's done a lot of new things and I think learned a ton from his experience in Oklahoma City, bringing that team far above their recent performance on the defensive end and getting one of John Wall's best seasons to date out of his star player. So big shout out to Scotty Brooks as well. All right. So executive of the year, I think the winner is pretty obvious. If you can get Kevin Durant to a 73-win team, you should win executive of the year. (laughs) I have Daryl Morey in second place behind Bob Myers, just because the players that he added to this Rockets team in Ryan Anderson and Eric Gordon were exactly what they needed. And if you're talking about Mike D'Antoni teams, they do really, really, really well when they have the right players to fit his system. And Daryl Morey did an excellent job of doing that. He also got Lou Williams. And not only did he get Lou Williams, but he also managed to offload Corey Brewer, which is an incredible success for them, just, you know, getting his minutes out of the rotation. And in third place, I had Masai Ujiri. His trade deadline moves were, in my opinion, the best in the league by a pretty significant margin. P.J. Tucker and Serge Ibaka have been incredible boons to the Raptors' defense, and they have one of the best records in the league since the trade deadline, despite being without Kyle Lowry for all but their most recent game. So I have Bob Myers won, and of course, you got Kevin Durant, you automatically win. I have R.C. Buford, number two, and I just want to reward all the higher ups in the San Antonio front office for the fact that they have a they have a bunch of new guys roster turnover and they still have 61 wins and a big part of that is RC Buford and Pop working together and being in sync and having synergy with each other and then number 3 Daryl Morey like you said the Lou Williams trade was a great pickup Signing Eric Gordon and Ryan Anderson were high risk due to their injury history, but also high reward for the system that fit their skill sets. And also just realizing that it just wasn't going to work with Dwight. I'm not going to bring him back. That's also <laughs> that's also a big plus for me. And, and also, I'm a big chemistry guy. So that was a big move. And then, yeah, offloading Corey Brewer for Lou Williams, that was a great move, too. But Daryl Morey has put together a really good team this year. And, of course, hiring the, co- the right coach to run it and realizing that that coach also put the ball in James Harden's hands. Daryl Morey is third on my list. Like you guys, I have Bob Myers first. Same reasons. You've got excellent coaching. You've got an excellent team. And then you go out and add a former MVP in free agency. And I wasn't there for that pitch, but I would have loved to sit in on it and see just how it went. I've heard Myers speak about it a number of times in interviews, and it just seems like he knows how to push the right buttons on the people in his organization and just really manages that team well. 
I threw Daryl Morey in second, the Eric Gordon and Ryan Anderson signings, and the hiring of the right coach, which I think is a really underrated aspect of the GM's role and plays a decent part in who I have third, which is where I've got Ernie Grunfeld. This It's time he received some love for that coaching hire for someone who a lot of people said, oh, Scott Brooks, that's a boring hire. It's a guy who's not going to do that much. For seeing a guy who would adapt and learn from the things he did in Oklahoma City and really bring out the strengths of this team, for looking at Kelly Oubre and bringing him to the forefront, for watching Otto Porter develop and not ever panic trading him, for a team that looks like it's going to win the division for the first time in a long time and hit 50 wins for the first time in decades, it's hard not to reward the executive who's been the captain of that ship. There's also an honorable mention going out to John Hammond in Milwaukee for... Again, patience, letting Jason Kidd figure it out as the coach for drafting Malcolm Brogdon, my rookie of the year, and for not panicking on Greg Monroe and trading him away when you could take him, move him into the right role, and really let this team gel towards the end of the season and hunt down a playoff spot. Also, one of the other things Ernie Grunfeld did was take a risk and sign Bradley Beal to that huge extension, given that his health history and it's worked out also. Great point. All right. Anything else you guys want to talk about before we wrap up? Lance Stevenson's back. (laughs) (laughs) That's about it, though. I'm ready for the playoffs to start. Yeah, I'm ready for the playoffs, too. I'm looking forward to writing out a few playoff previews for wrapping up the season with some in-season review articles and excited for a lot of the content that I'm sure we're going to have on Hashtag Basketball over the coming months. All right. Well, they are Jordan Christmas and J.C. Fisher. You can find them on Twitter at SportsTalkXmas, S-P-O-R-T-S-T-A-L-K-X-M-A-S for Jordan and at V.J.C. Fisher, T-H-E-J-C-F-I-S-C-H-E-R. You can find me on Twitter at N-B-A-J-O-H-N-S-O-N. You can also find all of our work on the Hashtag Basketball website, hashtagbasketball.com. You can also follow the website on Twitter at Hash Basketball. All of our work will go on that Twitter feed at some point, so check them out for great fantasy and NBA-related content. If you have any thoughts on the pod, please leave a rating or a review on whatever podcast player you might be using. Please also feel free to reach out to me on Twitter or send me an email at nickaj.nba at gmail.com. Again, that's n-i-c-k-a-j dot n-b-a at gmail.com. We might do a couple more deep dives as we head into the postseason. But if this ends up being our last podcast for the season, thanks so much to all of you for listening. 